0: Our Heavenly Father, we again, we come before you this morning, Lord. We thank you for this privilege to come together to worship in a, a country that allows us the freedom to do that. And Father, we just thank you for your many blessings. We pray for those among us, Father, that are hurting right now, maybe going through some things in life that are trials, and Lord, I just lift them up. I pray that you'd heal the bodies, that you'd give them strength, that Father, you'd reassure them, give them peace, that they may feel and sense the presence of your spirit and may they experience the power that comes from that and i pray lord that all of us would be changed by your spirit and be drawn closer to you go with us now as we look into your word i pray that you would open it up for us reveal it to us and lord i pray that we would take it to heart in jesus name we pray amen all right why don't you all be seated Back when we were living in Florida, we had some dear friends. Uh, I had a good friend, his name was Richie, and Richie and I did a lot of things together. We, did, we fished, we spent a lot of time doing things. We had Bible study together, went to church together. We moved from Florida, went on to came out here to Dallas in the 80s, and uh, we kept in touch with Richie and his wife and their family. One day. Uh, We were by this time up in Indiana, so a lot of years had passed. We got a a note or phone call, i forgot how she communicated it, let us know that Richie had bladder cancer, and um, it didn't look good because of the spread, and it wasn't long after that, we went on our usually yearly getaway to get out of the snow, so we went down to Florida, that's where they were living, and we went by Orlando and visited with him and his wife, and... um, He just looked like a lot of people who have gone through cancer treatment look. Um, He had no hair. His face was was withdrawn. His stomach was extended. And his breathing was difficult. He was in pain. He didn't feel good. He just wasn't himself. And it wasn't uh, probably a couple of months after that that he died. And since that time, um, or really not since that time, but all of, of my life, I've always, I can look back and see that there are, people in my life that have come into it that I always think and always feel like they died too early. And maybe you've experienced that too. Richie was, I think, in his 40s at that time. Just Friday, as a matter of fact, uh, two days ago, I'm sitting at the house and get a phone call. And my um, mother was telling me that uh, a friend of mine that we grew up with, that had lived up the street from us growing up, in fact his sister is married to one of my brothers so the families are very entwined he had two granddaughters and um they were first year college students and uh, they were going to a a ball game friday and a head a drunk driver hit them head on and one of them died instantly and the other was in emergency surgery and i have not heard how she's doing but then you know you look at that and you think to yourself why is all this happening? You know, why do, why do things like that happen? Why does a teenage girl like this, uh, first year of college and so excited, why would they die in an automobile accident? And I know that all of us have been touched with grief and sadness and suffering. And we ask those same questions. And we're, we, you know, we wonder, what in the world am I as a Christian supposed to think or how am I supposed to feel? And there's not a simple answer to this. There's not a simple answer as to why we go through trials in life in difficult situations and people die and we experience grief and heartache and suffering. And there's not a simple answer for that, nor is there a simple answer on how we're supposed to respond or feel. Because it's been my experience, not only in my own life, but dealing with other people, that everybody responds in different ways to the difficult situations that they face in life. I think there's a common belief, though, that seems to never go away. Um, And whenever something happens to us personally, I think whenever something happens to somebody else, we're very good at encouraging them. We're very good at lifting them up, that sort of thing. But when something happens to us, and I don't care who you are, I think we've all thought this at least, that when there's an ordeal in my life that has dragged me down and I'm worried, I'm hurting, I'm struggling with this, the question that is underneath, and I may not express it to anybody, but the question goes something like this, that if God was doing his job correctly, this wouldn't have happened. And I think all of us at one time or another have asked that and thought that. And again, we may not verbalize it because it sounds too unchristian to say out loud. We don't want to do that. So we tend to keep it to ourselves. And I understand that. And I know that God does too. Now, when James, one of the apostles there in the first century, looked at what was going on to the church, with the church, and to other Christians throughout the world, he was facing the same thing. You know, why are these people struggling? Why are they suffering? Because in that day and age, they were going through far worse than we could ever imagine in this country because they were being tormented, persecuted, their property was confiscated, their lives were being threatened, their loved ones were being killed simply because of their faith. And they had scattered throughout the known world. And it is for that reason that he writes this little book of James, which we are beginning a series in today, by the way, in case you weren't aware of that. And right out of the gate, as he begins this letter that he pens to, and sends it all throughout the known world to these Christians, these Jewish Christians who are scattered around, he comes out of the gate talking about suffering because he knew that was the foremost thing on their minds. They had these questions and they were struggling with, you know, why am I going through these trials in life? And where is God? And why has he abandoned me? And why would he let this happen? All of the usual things that each and every one of us would ask at a time like that. Today, what I want to do in the few minutes we have is to try to share with you some facts out of the first part of this passage, this chapter here, concerning the issue of trials and suffering. Now, both are synonymous. A trial is anything that causes you problems or stress or worry. Um, suffering goes hand in hand with it, and it varies, uh, d- the degrees to which it varies depending on each individual. but. The suffering and the trial is real, and it's real because it has affected you. So, I want to share with you today some facts about suffering. Hopefully, some of what I share with you today would help you um, as you are, have been, or will be going through it someday. And so, please listen and take to heart what is said. And if I can help you in any way, you feel free to come and see me, okay? Uh, my door is always open. I want to read this passage for you first, it's going to take a minute, but I just want to j- run through the first twelve verses of chapter one because it deals basically with this subject matter. And we're going to talk about this as we go through this today. So in James chapter one, we want to look at verses one through twelve. It says James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That I'm sorry. That person should not expect to accept, uh, receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all their do, all that they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to. Take pride in, the, in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, right out of the chute, it's, it's really odd if you think about it. Right after he says, hello, this is James, I'm writing to you, let me jump in here and tell you something. He jumps right into the subject of suffering. Four things that I want to draw out of here we're going to talk about today. And let me just say, if you're in a small group tonight, when you meet... What I want you to do, and it's up to you entirely, you don't have to, but I want you to be able to come into that group and to share with the group the worst event of your life, the most trying circumstance you've ever faced, and I want you to share with the group how you got through it or maybe you didn't. You see, this is not always a a celebration of victory, okay? Because some of us just don't get through it. But I want you to feel the freedom to share that with your group and I want you to talk about it. And I want you to be able to say, you know what, I went through this, I've been mad at God for 20 years. If that's the case, then say it. Because I want you to be able to listen to each other. And if you are struggling with something in your life, I want you to be able to hear from other Christians whether they were able to find victory in this and to learn something or whether they weren't and still struggling. Either way, Let's not try to hide um, what's going on. I don't think that's a healthy thing to do, so let's be open and honest with each other. But that's one of the things that I want you to talk about tonight. If you're not in a group, jump in one. If you just do it for tonight, that's okay. Just jump in one, all right? Um, The first thing that I want you to see is this. Eventually, everyone is affected by suffering. That's one of the things that is taught here in this passage. Eventually, every person, regardless of who you are, is going to be affected by suffering through some trial that you've encountered. In um, J- uh, James chapter 1, verse 2, let me read you this verse. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't say if. He doesn't question that maybe you will, maybe you won't. He says if you are breathing... There will come a time when you suffer some sort of setback in life. There will be some sort of trial that you go through. Whether well, we'll list them here in a minute, but just whatever it may be. And um, God never said, and this is one of the things that we as Christians need to understand, God never says in His Scripture that He will keep you from them. God said, I'll take you through them. Now, does God keep us from things? Absolutely. How many times has, have your children been almost hit? by a drunk driver you know god protects god in his timing does this but there will come something in some form or fashion in your life where you are struggling through life and it's going to happen and you need to understand that god says i will take you through it but i don't necessarily always keep you from it because i have a reason for that we'll talk about that in a minute suffering seems to be the great equalizer and here's what i mean it doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, if you are famous or if you're a nobody, if you, whatever race you may be or whatever your past may be, it does not seem to matter because God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to the issue of going through trials in life. And so whenever this happens, it, you know, we feel like, well, maybe God's just picking on me, but he's not. He's an equal opportunity Person here when it comes to trials and suffering, we all go through it. Now, well, I'm going to cover this, these couple of verses here where he talks about the rich and the poor. There's there's something here that you need to see and something you need to understand. If you just gloss over it, you'll miss it. But in the Bible, whenever the rich are referred to, that's usually a group which are considered lost. Um, the rich do this, but you you know, the saved are going to do this. Um, uh, James, in the next chapter, as a matter of fact, he says, why, when a rich person comes into your church, do you bring him down front and give him the best seats and tell the poor guy to get back there? He says, aren't the rich the ones that persecute you and cause you trouble and take you to court and all these things? So wh- what I'm saying is this, that in the society they lived in, there was very much a class society. You were either rich or poor. There was no... Middle ground there. There was no, uh, uh, what do we call it today? The, um, I, I, it's a word for it. All the politicians talk about it. I can't, I can't think of it. It's on the tip of my... middle class. Yeah, the middle class. We talk about the middle class, but there really wasn't then. Either you were rich or poor. And if you were rich. You were characterized, now this doesn't mean that all were this way, but there was a characterization that you don't think you have a need for Christ. You're not going to come to Christ. And in 99.9% of the time, they were unsaved. And so when the Bible approaches this, he looks at the humble, which Jesus talked about, you know, I've come to, to preach to the humble of heart and so forth. It's the poor that are looking for me, that are hungry, the rich are not. So the rich generally, when referred to in the Scripture are unbelievers, and the poor were the believers. That doesn't hold true all the time. I'm just saying it's the class in which they found themselves. And with that in mind, listen to what he said. In James chapter 1, verse 9, he says believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Now, the believers in the humble circumstances were the poor. And notice he calls them believers. He's referring to this group, and he's saying, you guys that are out there that I'm writing to, You don't have two nickels to rub together. He said, but here's how you need to face this time in life. You need to focus on your high position. What high position? Well, in Christ. He said, look at who you are. Look at what God has done for you. Look at what's going to be yours someday. And even though you're going through this time right now, you need to focus on that. But then he has a message for the rich or the unbeliever. It's going through the same type of situations. He says in verse 10, but you rich, and notice he doesn't say believers, he just says you rich, should take pride in, um, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. Now what is he talking about? Well, the humiliation is where you find yourself. A rich man doesn't want to think of anything that he can't buy his way out of. And for him to be able to suffer or to go through a hard time or to lose his child and so forth, he's humiliated and God is just bringing him down to size and he's, yet he's saying to this man, you ought to take pride or find cons- uh, console, be consoled in this, that your humiliation is going to result in something good. Next verse in verse 11. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. He said, look, you're a rich man and you're not looking to get saved. You don't think you need it. So when God humbles you, whenever whenever you start going through the trials of life, you need to understand that your, your humiliation is God giving you the opportunity to come to him. Because there may never be an opportunity in your life where you ever are humbled to such a degree that you will seek the Lord. He said the, the poor, they know where they're going. You need to find solace in that, that you know where you're going. But the rich, when you're going through this, then let God do his thing. And you let this drive you to the Lord. This is why in verse 12 he says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the first thing that I want you to see in this is that you are going to go through it, whether you are rich or poor, in good health or not, there will come a time in your life where you face trials where you struggle, where you worry, where, where you're brought down emotionally in your suffering. Now, look at the second point, and that is this. That suffering comes in many different varieties. It comes in many different varieties. Verse 2, he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. You see, we can't just put a definition on a trial and try to make it, okay, you're in a trial or suffering when you lose a loved one. That's generally what we think of. That's the, the worst thing we can think of would be a, a, a trial or, or suffer over that. But let me tell you what, what we're talking about here. The word here that's used when he says many kinds of trials or many kinds I think in the King James it says various trials. The word itself means to spread out. In other words, he's saying, whenever you face these things that are spread out. Now this is where we get our English word polka dot from. We get the word polka dot from this Greek word. And it's basically saying that your life is going to be dotted with trials. Various things. Different things. So when we talk about a trial... You know what determines whether it's a trial or not? You do. If it bothers you, then it is a trial in your life. If it brings you down emotionally and causes you to worry, then that's a trial for you. Let me give you examples. You may be struggling with a terrible sickness, and for you that is a trial. You may have suffered through or struggled through an accident where you are injured or someone you love is lost. That death, that accident for you is a trial. Somebody else may be struggling through financial problems. And for them, that's a trial. For you, it may not be that big a deal. And you don't understand why they're so down and worried and it consumes their every thought. But for them, that is a trial. For you, you may have a wavered child, a child that's rebellious, a child that's going through some things, a child that is in trouble, and for you, that's a trial. Somebody else, it may not be. You've gone through a terrible divorce, and that to you is suffering and a trial. Others who haven't, they don't understand that, but for you, it was. When we're in prison or whether we're struggling because of abuse in our past, whatever it may be, for you, it's a trial. And you're the one that defines it. And they come in all kinds, all shapes, all sizes at different times in life. Now the reason this is important for you to know is this. Because we have a a tendency to point that finger back at God. And we'll say to God, no. And you know, we're all all close to God and, and spiritual when it's not us this laying their loved one to rest. When we're not struggling, we're all spiritual, but you let something happen in our lives. And guys, I'm telling you because I I know my own life. Emotionally and spiritually, we're going down the tubes real quick. And for us, that is disaster. For us, that is something to worry about. Maybe for somebody else, that may not be, but for us it is. And you need to understand that it's going to happen and it could be any number of things that affects you. If it affects you, then to you that's a trial. Now here's the third thing. And this is where we start starts getting a little hairy because you're going to have to think through this and some of you are going to disagree, but I want you to listen, okay? third thing is this, that your suffering always has a purpose. Your suffering always has a purpose. I see some of us, that doesn't bother. Some of us, it does. I tell people whenever they struggle with this, and we you know, we have to go through this and talk about it, I say to them this. I say, wouldn't you feel better knowing that the God of the universe had his hand in this and has it under control than to think that it just randomly happened? And that it might randomly happen again. And that nobody controls it. Now this is important for you and me to understand and at least begin to comprehend because if I can understand and believe that there's a purpose behind it, whether I know what it is or not, then I can at least accept it. Let me show you these couple of verses in James. Look at verse 3 here. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. There's a purpose. There's a reason. He's saying your faith is being tested. It's going to result in perseverance. Now, what is that? Well, basically, he's saying you're going to be able to get stronger because this is happening now. Your faith is going to be stronger tomorrow and the next day. You're going to be able to stand up against things. You're going to get stronger. In verse 4, he says, but let perseverance finish its work So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, so somehow through this ordeal that you're going through, God's working on you to bring you to maturity spiritually. You're growing stronger. That's basically where he's going with this. All right, now here's our problem. See, our problem is we don't want to hear anything about a purpose because when we're going through it, we don't really care about a purpose. When we're going through it, we are demanding, and this is where a lot of us are, we're demanding to know why. We want to know, where were you, God? Why did you let this happen? You should not have allowed this. This is unfair. And so for us to even think that, well, God allowed this somehow, that this was in the the sovereignty of God and that somehow God allowed it, causes us problems. Because our image of God, as all of a sudden, comes under attack. Because, you see, all this time we thought we were God. I thought I was in control. And God says, no, you're not. See, that was Job's problem. If If you've ever read the book of Job all this disastrous stuff happens to Job and it tells you right there in the beginning of the book, God did it. And when it's all, as it goes through the process and Job's friends come to him and tell him, you've done something terrible, you need to repent, Job keeps saying, no, I, I'm a good man. I'm a good man and this is not fair. And God is, if he knows what's going on, he'll fix it because God wouldn't do this because I'm a good man and it should not have happened to me. And then toward the end of the book, God finally speaks, and he's basically saying to Job, Job, who do you think you are? Where were you when I created the world? Job, I'm God, and I'm sovereign, and I'm sorry you can't understand that. But I'm not unfair. And what I'm doing in you, even now, Job, is changing your whole outlook on who I am. God had a reason for doing it. Job didn't want any part of that. Didn't want to hear it. And God had to straighten him out. Sometimes, listen to me, sometimes there is no good purpose known to man for what we are going through. I can't figure it out, nor can you. A disaster happens in our family, like just happened to my friends. Why? Who knows? I can't tell you. But what God is trying to convey to us is, listen, I always have a purpose. And it doesn't mean that you have to understand it. And see, this is where we really rebel. Because you see, God, I want, I need to understand. And God's may be saying, and this is not always true, but maybe saying, not this time, not this time. There are several examples in the Bible where God did something and he had a purpose for doing it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. There was an incident in the New Testament when Jesus was walking along with his disciples and they come upon a blind man. And the blind man had been blind from birth. And so the disciples take this opportunity to ask a theological question. And so the question goes like this. Lord, our Master, tell us who sinned that this man was born blind. Was it him? or so He had something to do with it? Or was it his parents? I, that's a good question. I mean, my goodness, probably all of them were thinking about it or had thought about it, so one of them spoke up. And here's Jesus' answer in John chapter 9, verse 3. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) The guy was born blind. For what, 30 years or so, he's been sitting here begging. And you're the God of the universe, and you did this, you allowed this, so that one day Jesus could come along and heal him and work a miracle. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It doesn't seem fair. God never gave me a vote. He never said, is this okay with you? See, the same thing with Lazarus. Lazarus, Jesus loved that man. He loved Mary and Martha, his sisters. He stayed at their home so many times. They lived in a little town called Bethany, and Jesus is a couple miles away. I think he was in Jerusalem or something, preaching and teaching, and Lazarus had fallen ill and was ready on the doorstep of dying. And they sent word to Jesus, get over here because you've healed the sick before. We know you can fix it. We have all the faith in you. Get over here and heal this man, the man that you love. And Jesus waited two more days. And the Bible says that Lazarus died. And then Jesus said, now let's go see him. And he comes up and the first person he meets is Martha. And Martha (laughs) said, basically, where were you if you had been here? If you had been here like you were supposed to be, this would not have happened. Oh, she's accusing him. Oh, she's mad. You were unfair because here's a guy you loved and you let him die. And Jesus' response was very simple. He says, Martha, have I... He says, have I not told you about the resurrection before? Do you not understand that I'm the God of the resurrection She goes into some theological monologue about, yeah, I understand this, this, and that. He said, no, you missed the point. Come here and let me demonstrate it. So he walks to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, get out of there and come on. Lazarus gets up and walks out of the tomb and everybody marvels. One of the greatest miracles in the Bible because Jesus wanted to convey or to teach to people and demonstrate, I am the God of the resurrection. And Lazarus was his guinea pig. For all practical purposes, Lazarus, you're going to die in order that this might take place. Now, everybody's happy afterwards, but boy, they were sad at the beginning. But yet God had a reason for doing it. There's a characteristic of God, one of his attributes called omniscience. It means that he knows everything. He knows what happened, what is happening, and what's going to happen. He even knows what might have happened. He knows it all. It's one of the things we're taught in Scripture and we don't fully understand or can't comprehend. But listen to this. The omniscience of God demands that God knows the purpose or the reason for our suffering. God knows. And see, here's where you and I have to step back because we don't know nor do we have to know. And that's the part that causes us problems. But i tell you, I find more comfort in finally coming to the realization that I need to let God be God and stop trying to be God myself. And it's okay for me to acknowledge that it's okay for you to be God. And when I get to that point, then I am much more able to endure and to have perseverance and to accept things that happen in life that I can't understand or don't like. See, we make this assumption. We say things like this. We say, why do bad things have to happen to good people, though? That's the part I don't understand. I say, why? That person was such a good person. Why them? If it were some terrible sinner, I might understand it. But why them? Why do good things happen, or bad things happen to good people? I don't understand. But you see, that's a a tremendous assumption that we make when we say that. We're assuming that we're good. Yeah, uh (laughs) uh-oh. See, we assume that we're good, and what we need to understand is that when God chose to save us, we were rotten to the core. And only by the grace of God has he saved us. And only through the blood of Christ are we redeemed and we don't deserve any of it. So the real question we ought to be asking, instead of pointing a finger at God, we ought to be saying, why do do good things happen to bad people? Because we need to get this in perspective. That when it comes to my relationship to God and His relationship to me, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve to have a family. I don't deserve to have money. I don't deserve to have good health. I don't deserve any of this because God says you're under the judgment of my wrath. But because of the blood of Christ, I have redeemed you. I have forgiven you. And I'm continually working in your life to change you and to mold you. But what you deserve, you're just lucky I didn't give you what you deserve. So when it comes right down to it, how do we charge him with injustice? How do we do that? We can't. And see, we as Christians have got to come to this understanding that I cannot charge God with being unjust to me. And so the thing is, I've got to be able to come to grips with the sovereignty of God and to say, yeah, things like this happen in the lives of God's children and I cannot understand it, but I would rather have him controlling it than to think that somehow he's not powerful enough to do that. And that somehow it randomly happens. I don't like random. I'm the kind of guy that likes to know that God's in charge and that I can trust him. So yeah, when James talks about having patience, you see, that's something that develops when you come to grips with sovereignty. I come to grips with you or God. Patience floods my life. Because I can now relax. And that's the beauty of it. Number four is this, and this is the last one. If you don't know what to do, I'm talking about during this time, if you don't know what to do, ask God for help. Now, here's what I mean by that. Whenever you are going through this ordeal, a lot of us, we're confused. A lot of times we're grieving. We are, our, our insides have been ripped out, it seems like. We're angry, even though we may not admit it. We're angry. And we don't know. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to believe. Our whole world has been turned upside down. And it's usually during this time, when we're so confused, we we become immobile. Now, you know this from experience, either in your own life or somebody else's. That person will go into depression. That person will just sit there. That person will just let life go by because they don't know. What to do. they got finances they need to take care of, and they can't. They just are unable. They have kids they need to take care of, but they just are unable. Decisions that need to be made. Going to work. Going to school. All of these things. But I can't, because I'm so torn up. And what he's saying is this. In that moment, when you lack wisdom, then you need to ask God for it. God didn't abandon you. It may be rough. It may be hard, but He didn't abandon you. You know, wisdom is one of those words that is taught in the Bible that we don't understand. It's not talking about knowledge. Wisdom in the Bible is this. The person that knows what God has said and obeys it, that's the wise person. The person that does what he's supposed to do, does the right thing, does what is right, that's the person that the Bible says is wise. Here I am. I've just gone through the meat grinder, so to speak, and life is falling apart around me, and I'm sitting here, and I don't know what to do, And I don't know what the right thing is to do. I don't know what the next step in life should be. God says, ask me. I didn't leave you. I didn't leave you. Verse 5 says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. I'm not here to beat you up, God says. I'm not finding fault. I'm here to help you. You need to know what to do. You need some direction. You need some help during this time. And I want you to know that you can come to me. But I want you to believe. It says in the next verse, but you ask, you must believe, he said. I want you to come with me, and I want you to say, basically, in effect, you're you're dealing with your unbelief, you're dealing with your anger, you're coming to me and saying, God, you are God. And I don't know what to do. And I don't have the answers, but I know that you do. And I am trusting you to take me through this. What do I do? And God says, I will show you. I'll show you. He said, and I will take care of you. In the Bible, this is referred to as surrender. We don't like that word. I am who I am, and I can do it. And God knocks you down, he says, no, you can't. Are you going to surrender to me? And see, we kick against that, and we rebel against that. And what we don't understand as believers is that if you want peace and joy and spiritual fulfillment, then God says, you surrender to me. And there has to come a point in time where we do that, where we're basically saying, God, you're God. I accept it. I don't understand it, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because I know who's in charge. So I tell you, I encourage you to stop trying to answer the question, why? There may not ever be a reason in this world that you know of. In this life, you'll go to your grave wondering why, and that's not the right question. The right question is, what? What do I do? What do you want from me? Give me your direction. Because I'm trusting you. In the middle of all this, I've got to trust you. And so that's what I want to do. And before we close, I want to go back to verse 2. I didn't lead with this because when it says, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into these terrible ordeals, Once you open with that, nobody's listening after that because they say, you've got to be kidding me. Consider it pure joy. Are you kidding me? But when you understand what God's really asking of you, when you understand that God is saying joy is yours, it's your disposal. If you'll trust me, if you'll trust me and acknowledge me sovereign, then I'll give you joy. In that verse where it says, consider it pure joy, you know what the word consider means? To consider it pure joy, it means to lead out. It just means that you're leading out. He says, lead out with joy. Lead out in life with joy. That's what I want you to do. From this point on, I want you to live a joyous life. And we think to ourselves, that's not possible. God says, yes, it is. But you've got to trust me. And you still got to walk with me. And you still got to honor me, even though you don't understand. And I guarantee you, from the authority of God's word, that no matter what you're going through in life, that if you will begin to let it go and trust him, then you begin to change. And that's what you're wanting. You can't change the circumstances. But the way you look at it will change. These are the four points. Everyone suffers sometime in life. That Suffering comes in different ways. Suffering always has a purpose, even though we may not know what it is. And all we've got to do is ask the Lord to help us, and he will. He'll take us through it. I want to close with this one last verse. If you're here this morning and you're wondering what salvation is, let me read you this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Listen to the verse. God made him, talking about Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the best verses in the Bible. Because here we are, we stood before God as sinners, and God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my son who knows no sin, is perfect, And I'm going to take all the sin you've ever committed or ever will commit, everything in your life, I'm going to take all that guilt, lift it off of you, and I'm going to place it on him, and he's going to go to the cross and pay for it. And then when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, him, your sacrifice, I'm going to take his perfection and righteousness and then give it to you. That doesn't mean you're going to act that way all the time. I wish you would, but you're not, he says. But we get better as time goes on. The closer we walk to him, the more like him we are. But the thing that you need to remember is that this is a spiritual process that takes place. That we might become the righteousness of God once that takes place. That's the beauty of what salvation is. It's a transaction. I put my faith in Christ. He takes my sin and gives me his righteousness. I stand before God the Father in Christ, as righteous as he is in the eyes of God. That's how he can save us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're here this morning, you've never understood the gospel, then it's time for you to put your faith in Christ. It's time for you to sit there, right there where you are, in the quietness of your own heart and straighten this out between you and God. Express to God that, yes, you acknowledge you're a sinner, but you understand that he has saved you, and you're accepting that. You're believing it. The Bible says, by faith you are saved. That's what you're saved by your faith. Trust him. For all of us, guys, if you're not, you probably have been or will go through something. It's going to knock you down to your knees. That's when your faith is really going to be tested. Do you really believe that God will take you through it? My prayer for myself and for you as well is that all of us would understand that God is God let him be God in our lives. That we would trust him in times like that, even though we don't have answers. And in that trusting, the joy begins to well up in us. And it's the joy that leads us through the the remainder of our lives. It's what takes us through this horrible life. Because if you take God out of it, it is indeed a horrible life. Our Heavenly Father, we bow here before you and we're humbled. Father, we are humbled as we bow in your presence and surrender to you. Father, if there's one here that has never put their faith in you, then they are surrendering to you today by trusting in you. For all of us who have lifted our fists toward heaven and accused you of injustice, Father, we surrender before you here today. And Lord, we acknowledge our sinful behavior and we trust you with our lives father may we feel and experience the joy of of the lord the peace of god and father i pray that whatever we need from you as we come before you that you would supply that lord we do pray for your protection your provision your guidance and lord we thank you for those times that you have spared us from so much May we always be the first in line to acknowledge who you are and to raise our hands in gratitude for what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray.